Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, 
will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come to full descriptions of earthly worship that you mandated and decreed many years ago, and we find also its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. These things were copies and shadows that pointed to something richer and fuller that was yet to come. And so lead us into all truth and guide us to your throne of grace where Jesus stands and intercedes for us today. We ask God that you would lead us into truth. Speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Last week we entered into the central portion of the book of Hebrews, the chapters 8 through 10, three chapters in which God makes a sustained argument about why we should not quit Jesus. That is why we should not drift away from him or walk away from him. Under some pressure, And due to some inconvenience, this unknown congregation to us, sometime in the first century, was losing interest in Jesus. And they were contemplating either a withdrawal from Jesus or some kind of compromise with Judaism. Our pressures are perhaps different, but yet they are nonetheless real. That we too, with various pressures and inconveniences can be tempted to leave Jesus, and that we have to be honest with ourselves. We are prone to think, certainly it would be easier if we just found another way, another way of being religious or spiritual, perhaps, that wasn't quite as arduous. And it is to that precise moment, that moment when we say, maybe we should find another way that God speaks today. And so the question for us is, what do we need in order to continue following Jesus? This is the burden of chapter 9, is to answer that question, to provide you with resources of what you need in order to continue to entrust yourself to this great high priest, Jesus Christ. There's three things outlined here in chapter 9. The first, what we need in order to continue following after Jesus, is we simply need an accurate estimate of our dilemma. You'll notice in verses 1 through 10 that it begins with an elaborate, detailed explanation of the Old Testament tabernacle. This was the tent that was constructed by Moses at God's instruction that was a copy built off a blueprint of the heavenly places. And there in that tent, there is an elaborate type of procession that takes place. There's an outer courtyard, and then there is the tent that has two separate chambers, the holy place and then the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Into the holy place itself, the priest went daily. They there tended to the golden lampstand, and they also offered incense. Weekly, they would replace what is known as the showbread. But they were there on a regular basis, but not everyone was allowed into that holy place, only the Levitical priest. But then we have the distinction of the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was located. And into the most holy place, only one day a year, a priest, the high priest, was allowed to go. 
And he came with blood, atoning for his own sins and for the sins of the people. This happened on the 24th day of the seventh month, the day of atonement that we find about and that we read about in Leviticus 16. But the high priest was only able to enter into the most holy place. He entered in the power of another life. That is through atonement and the blood of something else. And so he didn't come by his own piety because of his own prayers or because of righteous attainments. So why all this detail? Why does chapter 9 start with such elaborate detail? Verse 8 actually tells us why. Verse 8 explains that the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament, is teaching us something. And the Holy Spirit today is teaching us something through this elaborate architecture and through all the elaborate ritual. The many different sacrifices that took place day after day and year after year. That the Spirit is guiding us into a more profound truth. That all these things, as verse 9 tells us, are symbolic. And they are pointing to something in and beyond. That these are mere shadows. And they're taking us to deeper truths. Because with the tabernacle, what's so important for us to grasp today is in that construction of an outer courtyard that goes then to a holy place, that then goes to a most holy place. What we are witnessing is the process of moving from a profane, sinful, broken world into the holy presence of God. And this is what the Spirit reveals to us today through this architecture and ritual. And that, yes, those old sacrifices were inadequate. That the blood of goats and calves, they were insufficient to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. And all of this elaborate ritual and architecture was impressing one point. And it's that, that is that human beings are defiled and they're alienated from God. We're separated from him. That we're unclean. And it makes very clear for us the dilemma that we have. The radicalness of that dilemma. Because what we have in the Old Testament is a restricted sense of representation. And we have inadequate sacrifice. And it points to us the depth of our problem. Fifteen years ago, my father-in-law opened the opportunity for me and my other brothers-in-law to travel to Africa to first go on a mission trip and then also to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Many of you have heard different aspects of that event. It was a lifetime worth, worth of sermon illustrations. But one of the ones that I fail to share often is at the end of the trip, because there were 11 days of camping. And on Mount Kilimanjaro, you go through every different climate zone. And so we had to wear sunscreen. We had to also have gear that was prepared for freezing temperatures. But across those 11 days, there is no showering that takes place. And so at the end of that, there was a considerable sumptuous smell that consumed us on the trail. But here's the thing. We were all in the same boat. No one actually thought about it, that that combination of sweat and sunscreen and volcanic dust that had accumulated on all of our skin that made us perhaps a few shades darker, it didn't bother us as much. But then we returned to base camp, and then we were ferried back to our hotel. And when we reached the hotel, it was finally the opportunity to shower. 
I was sharing a room with my brother-in-law, and so he jumped in the shower first. He shaved, cleaned himself, got dressed, came out, and suddenly it all became plain. It was at that moment that I understood how filthy I was. (laughs) That the layer of grime was so thick that I understood just how bad I actually smelled. That it became so clear. And friends, this is the purpose of the elaborate ritual. That it is the contrast in which we're to see just how defiled, just how dirty, just how alienated we are. That the priest had to enter only once a year. He could only do so once a year. And that was in the power of another life. And that is communicating to us the barriers that exist between us and God. And one of the keys to your perseverance in the Christian life is always holding on to that essential fact. It's just the essential need that we have, the dilemma that faces us, our sin and the need for atonement. But the author moves on from this, in which he expresses our dilemma, and he then moves to a second point that you'll find in the second half of the chapter in verses 11 through 28, where as we own our dilemma, that we also must consider then what Jesus has accomplished. And so the subject moves from the Old Testament sanctuary to now a sacrifice that has been made. There are three things that are important to understand about this sacrifice, and so follow with me in what is a complex argument. The first you find in verses 11 through 14, where we discover the quality of the sacrifice, that Jesus is a pure and voluntary sacrifice. Read with me in verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? By the Spirit, Jesus offered himself as the obedient one. He did not sin. He kept the righteous rules of God. He followed God's will all the days of his life. And he did so empowered by the Spirit, is what Hebrews argues. And so he was a pure sacrifice without fault or blemish. Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies. And this was not an earthly sanctuary, But it was the one from which the copy was made. He entered into the heavenly places, not with the blood of an animal, but Hebrews says with his own blood, righteous blood. He was a blameless sacrifice. And then the argument progresses into the next verses in verses 15 through 22. And we see that this Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice, is able to remove the curse of the broken covenant. This is perhaps the most confusing portion of our chapter in which it speaks of the dynamics of how a covenant is formed. You can find this in the Bible in various places, perhaps Genesis 15, and then also in Jeremiah 34, where the dynamics of how a covenant was made is laid out. 
In Jeremiah 34, the covenant is made in which God swears himself to the people. But then there was frequently a ceremony that took place in which an animal was cut in half. And then the covenant partner, after receiving the promise from the superior partner, would pass through the pieces of the animal and swear their loyalty to God. And what was being said in those ancient ceremonies was, if I am unfaithful to my part of this covenant, may this happen to me. And so what we have taking place when Jesus goes to the cross is Jesus is absorbing the failure of the old covenant. And that implicated all human beings. All of Israel had broken the covenant. The Gentiles were outside of the covenant. And Jesus takes into his own body all of that failure. And then that covenant is made obsolete. It has been fulfilled and completed. Because for that covenant to no longer have control of human beings, someone had to die. This is the argument. If you follow with me. In verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This death is referring to Jesus's. For where a will or a testament or covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And so Jesus removes the curse of the old covenant, that that no longer holds human beings. Paul argues this way in Galatians chapter 3, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He receives it into his own body. The third step in the argument here of understanding what Jesus has accomplished, though, is found in verses 23 through 26, in that Jesus represents us before God's throne Follow with me in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And friends, here is what is so critical, that in this sequence in which we have a blameless sacrifice, righteous blood, in which we then have one who receives the curse for us. That he does not remain on the cross, but rather because he was righteous, death could not hold him. He rises from the dead and he ascends where he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, as we learn in chapter 1. And it's there that Jesus once for all has passed into the heavenly places, Look back to the language of verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. Once for all, Jesus passes into the heavens. He alone is qualified to do that. But it is there that Jesus represents us. He is a priest on our behalf. And when Jesus presents himself before the throne of grace... He also presents all those who are united to him. And this is the great hope of the Christian. Because we have a blameless sacrifice, because we have one who has absorbed our curse, and because we now have one who represents us, we have confidence. 
And it's not a confidence rooted in any of our achievements. It's not a confidence in which is rooted in our resume. It's not a confidence that's built around our intellect or any accomplishment that we can pull together. The confidence is in the one who represents us, the high priest who goes before us. This is the resource that the preacher of Hebrews points us to, the absolute, the sufficient, and the final grace of God that's given in Jesus. This is what motivates perseverance. This is what secures perseverance. This is what empowers and enables it. That it is only the grace of God to recognize how free and how indescribable and also how indestructible it is. We have to understand all that Jesus has accomplished again and again, reconsidering it, returning to it, meditating upon it. And it's this grace that arrests spiritual drift to understand the perfect sacrifice, to understand what he has done in absorbing our curse, and then understanding who he is today on our behalf, that God is not ashamed of us because Jesus Christ stands before him and we are connected and united to him. The final piece, though, of what it takes for us to persevere and not quitting Jesus is that we have to also take into account what Jesus will accomplish. Because you see, he's not done. Verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so what do we require? We require strong confidence that Jesus is not finished. That just as he appeared once to die for sins, so he will appear again. And he will not show up that second time to deal with sin. No, rather he shows up to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so the task of waiting is what becomes the church today. We must wait, and we must do so eagerly, anticipating that. Of course, many find that to be a fool's errand. Some people mock Christians, just saying that they're waiting, and they've been waiting forever. It's because no one is ever going to turn up. Perhaps most famously, Samuel Beckett, in his play Waiting for Godot, captures it. It's two main characters, Didi and Gogo, and every day, these two tramps meet at a tree in which they're waiting for the third main character, Godot, waiting for him to show up. They distract themselves in various ways, and they are utterly buffoons in so many others. They're waiting for some time, it's been clear, and Godot never shows the message is that they're waiting in vain, that it's hopeless. And many would say the same of the Christian faith. And so how do we wait productively? How do we wait well? How do we wait with confidence? Note the way that Hebrews argues with us. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. 
since he came once to deal with sins, he will come again to consummate the whole story. That the dilemma, the problem has already been solved. That once for all, Jesus has been crucified. Once for all, he has entered into the heavenly places. And so it's not a large thing that lies ahead. The consummation is just bringing all the fruits of his crucifixion and of his resurrection to bear. And if he's done that first thing, if he's accomplished his great victory, how much more so will he accomplish that second thing? This is the way God appeals to us. That he will complete. He will finalize the story. He's done everything necessary already for that. And we wait for Jesus' return. How do you make it? How do I make it? Through the temptations and the trials, the disappointments and the fatigue of the Christian life. How do you make it? You dig deep into all of this that God provides. We have to have that accurate assessment of our dilemma. Our sinfulness. We have to own that and appreciate it. Understand all the ways that God reveals that to us. And that leads us then into a deeper appreciation of all that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. In his blameless sacrifice. In his removal of the curse of the broken covenant that we were guilty of. And then in his representation of us. And then it secures us for eagerly waiting for him. These are the resources God gives to you. He gives them to me. And he calls us to look to Jesus in faith. And so let's ask him to help us with that. And Father, as we gain a sight of all that you've done in the history of our world to reveal yourself to us, we are struck by the profundity of our own sinfulness but even more so by the profundity of your grace that has been given in Jesus. He is the blameless sacrifice. He is the one who was cursed on our behalf. And he is the one who represents us. And in him we are secure. In him we are safe. And we come to you, even today, in and through him. And we eagerly wait for his return. Build up the reserves of faith in us that we would trust you and every promise that you've made to us in your son. We pray in his name. Amen.